Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, if I haven't met you before, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King, and, and we're really glad that you're here. If this is your first time, or uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, if you're a vet visitor or guest, welcome. We are glad that you're with us. I, I say that every week, and I mean it every week. We are, we are happy that you are here. You are welcome in this place, and we are, we are glad to be with you uh, to worship the Lord together, to sing to Him, to pray to Him, to sit under His Word. And this morning, we're coming to a portion of God's Word that's found in Exodus chapter 19. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus 19. You can also find the passage in your order of service. It's printed there. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 of Exodus 19 this morning. Um, now, if you remember uh, from uh, months ago, it, it really is only months ago, it might feel like eons ago, but in Exodus chapter 3, uh, Moses was on a mountain, and as he was walking along this mountain, he came across this bush that was uh, engulfed in fire, but the bush wasn't being consumed. Do you remember this? So he goes near to it. He says to himself, I'll go and I'll check this out. I'll look a little bit closer. And so he does. And from the bush comes a voice from the Lord. God speaks out of the bush and he says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And you are going to lead my people out of slavery, out of Egypt. You are going to deliver my people. And then God says to Moses from this bush in Exodus 3, he says, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God said that you're going to go and do these things. You're going to go and obey me. You're going to lead my people out. And when you bring them to the mountain and serve me on this mountain, that will be the sign to you that I was with you all this time, that I am who I said I am. There's a sign that is coming into the future. Well, that sign is coming to fulfillment in our passage. It's beginning to play out in our passage because it is that mountain that the people are at now. They have wandered through the wilderness. They have been led by Moses, and they come to the foot of the mountain that God promised that he would lead them to, the mountain where they would serve him. And from there, God is going to tell them how they are to live. But before he tells them how they are going to live, he tells them who they are. And that's what we find in Exodus 19, 1 through 6. So follow along. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the 1980 Winter Olympics took place in Lake Placid, New York. And with every Olympics, we know that there are these wonderful human interest stories that come about, stories that we remember for generations after, some that we forget as soon as the, the flame goes out. I, 
I don't know if they actually put the flame out, but you know what I'm saying. We just forget about them completely. Well, well, the 1980 Olympics had one particular story that has remained for generations since. It was the story of the miracle on ice, the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. Some of you know about this because you watched it. Some of us uh, were very, very young, so we had to see it in the movie after called Miracle. Um, the U.S. Olympic hockey team, they, they had no reason to be able to compete against these other nations. They were a group of young college amateurs from all over the country coming together to play on this one team, right? They were coming together to compete against the best in the world. They, they had to play against Norway and Sweden and, and Canada, the mighty power Canada. But really, their chief competition was going to be the Soviet Union. You see, at the time, in 1980, the Soviet Union was the best team in the world. They were better even than Canada. Um, but the Soviet Unions, they were amateurs only in name only because, you see, it was the Soviet Union. And so their best players couldn't play in the NHL, but they could compete at this amateur level. And so the Soviets were stronger and older and faster and more disciplined, and they had a silver bullet. They had a magic secret weapon in the name of Tretiak. Tretiak was the best goalie in the world at the time, and he's actually one of the greatest goalies to ever play in the history of the sport of hockey. And he was their goalie. He was unstoppable. The Soviet Union couldn't lose. They were just going to trounce everyone, including the U.S., well, if you've seen the movie, you know that, that the story, a lot of what revolves around the story is the team actually trying to come together, the coach trying to form this group of college players into a single unit, a single team. And so there are these series of scenes, particularly in the middle of the movie, where the coach will just stop their play, stop their practice, and he'll have them introduce themselves. He'll have them say their name and their hometown, and then he'll say to them, who do you play for? And they'll say their college. They'll say uh, the U, meaning the University of Minnesota, or, or Boston University, or University of Wisconsin, or, or the University of North Dakota. Could, could you imagine, like, hockey in North Dakota? Like, it's just cold thinking about, right? Like, like however cold you're feeling right now, <laughs> it'd be colder than that. The University of North Dakota, of all places, this is where they were coming from. And they would say these sorts of things. Who do you play for? Now, what the coach was trying to do was unite them together. Who do you play for? In essence, when he was asking that question, who do you play for, what he was asking them was something much deeper than that. He was asking them, who are you? How do you identify yourself? Who are you? That's an interesting question. It's actually a very odd question. I mean, can you imagine, maybe this is your first Sunday here, and after the service, we're greeting you, and we're talking to you, and someone comes up and just says, so who are you? <laughs> That'd be a little weird, wouldn't it? Make you feel a little uncomfortable. You know, we'd probably say something like, well, my name's Penny, I'm the pastor. No, 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 that's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking your name, I'm not asking what you do, I'm not asking where you're from or where you live. I'm asking, who are you? we would know immediately that that question is trying to delve into something much deeper than just our name or our profession or our neighborhood. It's trying to get at the deepest parts of our identity, our deepest self. Who are you? It's a question that we often don't ask, and yet it is the question that we should be asking. 
Now, I don't know if Israel was asking that when they were at the foot of this mountain. We have nothing to indicate that they were asking that question, who are we? But, but what we see in this passage is that God is going to answer it anyway. He's going to answer on their behalf. Who are they? You see, these first six verses of Exodus 19 are identity verses. God is declaring to his people who they are. They were once these people who were enslaved. They were under Pharaoh's iron fist. But now, they have a new identity. They have a new identity. Their identity is that they are a delivered people. That's the first thing I want you to see, that that when God tells them who they are, he points to the fact that they have been delivered. Look at verses 3 and 4. God says to Moses, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, God is obviously speaking metaphorically here of the rescue from Egypt. He's saying he's the one who swooped in and he carried Israel out of Egypt. He bore them on eagles' wings. Now, that's not just speaking about that initial rescue, that initial deliverance, but it's also talking about how he cared for them even as they were in the wilderness. God protected them. Now, let's think about this from Israel's perspective. Israel hears God bore them on eagles' wings. I could imagine Israel thinking, that's not how it felt like. It didn't feel like you bore us on eagles' wings. I mean, when Pharaoh was bearing down on us with his chariots, when we were looking for food, when we thought that we would surely die because there was no water, it didn't feel like we were flying on the protective wings of God. It felt like we were crawling through the dust. And yet, what does God say? I was bearing you. In verse 4, he said, you yourselves have seen. God is reorienting their vision. You've experienced it. You've witnessed it. You've known how I have cared for you. When you thought that you were lost, when you thought you would starve, when you were convinced you would die of thirst, God said, I protected you. I was providing for you. You maybe didn't see his hands or his feet, and yet there he was. The psalmist in Psalm 77, he puts it this way. You see, at the end of Psalm 77, when the psalmist is coming out of his lament, and at the very end, as he is declaring how he is trusting and depending upon the Lord, he invokes the exodus, and this is what he says, Your way was through the sea, O Lord, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The psalmist was saying, you you didn't see his feet. You didn't see his hands, but you saw the results. God carried them. He delivered them. He rescued them. He was bearing them on eagles' wings. And in delivering them out of Egypt, God was drawing them to himself. That's what it says in verse 4. You yourselves have seen how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Do you hear what he's saying? You once were Pharaoh's, but now you are mine. You're mine. I didn't leave you in Egypt. I would not leave you to wander in the wilderness. I drew you to myself. That's what God is declaring. You're mine. I didn't leave you to flounder or to die, but you are my people. 
those that I've delivered. This is what he's saying about Israel, but this is what he says about you. This is what he says about all his people. If you are in Christ, this is what he declares about you, that God has delivered us from the bondage, from the slavery of our sin. That God has rescued us from the death that was, we were deserving because of that sin. God, through Christ's resurrection, has rescued us from judgment and punishment, and he has brought us near to himself. It's actually what Hebrews chapter 10 tells us. In the book of Hebrews, the, the author in chapter 10 tells us that because of the blood of Christ, we can draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Isn't that beautiful? That God takes our sin-soaked hearts and he sprinkles them clean by the blood of Christ. That he removes our sin from us and he draws us to himself. You see, the only way that we can come to the Father is by the blood of Christ. And that is what Christ has provided. He invites us into the presence of the Father. In another place in Hebrews, it says that we can boldly come into the throne room of God. The place of greatest holiness. We can boldly come because of the blood of Christ. That's what he's done for you. He's delivered you. He's delivered me. So he did for Israel. He brought them to himself, and he brings us to himself as well. We are a delivered people. But what does that mean for us? Like, what are we to do with that? How are we to live in response to that? Well, about five months before the opening ceremonies, uh, the U.S. Olympic team flew to Norway to play an exhibition match. And this, uh, this, this game didn't go very well. The U.S. should have won. They had the better team, but, but they, they didn't play very hard. Their hearts weren't in it. They were lackluster. The, the players were spending more time looking at the pretty girls in the stands than focusing on the game. And so when the final horn sounded and the game ended with a draw, the teams went out and they shook their hands, one another's hands, and Team USA started to head back to the bench, assuming that it was time to get showered and cleaned up so they could go have a night out on the town. But standing at the door to the bench was their assistant coach. And he said, no, guys, back on the ice. And when they turned around, they found the head coach standing in the middle of the ice. And he said something to the nature of, you didn't work hard in the game, but you're going to work hard now. <laughs> and so he lines them up on the end line, and they're going to skate lines, which is basically wind sprints except on ice. So they're going to go end line to blue line to end line to middle line to end line to other blue line back and forth again and again and again over and over again. The whistle would keep blowing and they'd have to keep doing these lines again and again and again. After a while, the, the stands have emptied the arena. There is no one there to watch them anymore and they're doing it again and again. The whistle keeps blowing more lines and more lines. Eventually, the lights are turned off and they think... <laughs> Whew, we can finally be done. But Coach blows the whistle again. And even in the dark, they're skating these lines. And there's this scene where, where they finally come to the end line and they're collapsing. They, they can't even stand, let alone skate, and they're dry heaving on the ice. And it's a disgusting scene. But, but they're just totally physically spent. And Coach looks at them. And he says to them, you think you can win on talent alone? 
You don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. This cannot be a team of common men. You have to be uncommon. See, what he was saying was because you are a part of this team, you can't be like everyone else. You can't be like any other team. You have to be uncommon. You have to be distinct. And that's what God says about us. See, that's what he says about his people. You have been delivered, but in your deliverance, as I have delivered you, as I have rescued you, you are now to be uncommon. You're to be distinct. That's the second part of this. That's what God tells them, that he has not just delivered them, but he has made them a distinct people. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice... And keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a treasured possession. Before we get to those three characteristics, those three defining terms that God's people are, we we need to deal with a couple other parts of verse 5. You notice that began with a therefore. What is the there, therefore? Well, he tells us it is our response. God is saying, I've delivered you, I've rescued you, and now you have to respond. And the way that you are to respond is by hearing his voice and obeying his covenant, keeping his covenant. God has delivered his people, and he now wants us to obey. That is the proper response to God's deliverance, is that we would live as a holy people, that we would live in obedience to his covenant. Now, I imagine that some of you hear that word if, and maybe it gets you tripped up a little bit, and so we need to talk about that. Because that word if can make it sound like this is a meritorious sort of relationship. Like God is saying, if you keep my commandments, then I will love you. Right? Maybe some of you are thinking that. But, but this word if isn't being used here meritoriously. It's actually being used instrumentally. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, we have to understand how covenants are structured. So the covenants in the Bible function this way. Um, They have these characteristics that are the same with all of them, that God initiates this covenant. So the greater initiates towards the lesser. He is the sovereign. He initiates towards his people, his vassals. Uh, that, anyway, so um, that's what he does. Um, but, but in doing that, okay, he, he oftentimes will initiate towards us in that way through deliverance. And so that's what we see in Exodus. He delivers his people, and now he's going to tell them how they are to respond. Okay, and we're going to see this response coming in chapter 20 and following. But included in these covenant stipulations is this requirement or this promise that if you keep my commandments, you will be blessed, you will have covenant blessing, but if you reject my covenant, you will come under covenant curses. It's found all over Deuteronomy. There's whole chapters about covenant blessing and covenant curses. Um, it's actually a very interesting section to read through. But, but the point is, is that God's people are to respond to his grace, to his love and deliverance by obeying him. And as we obey him, we experience his blessing. That's what the if is getting at. It's getting at that we are to live in covenant faithfulness to our covenant initiating God. And that as we do so, we experience the blessing of his covenant. It is not to earn his favor. It is not to merit his love. 
It's because that love and favor has already been shown to us. We obey him. We live as his people. And as we live obediently, we live in the midst of covenant blessing. Now, this isn't just an Old Testament principle. This is actually in the New Testament as well. So if you remember in Ephesians, the first three chapters of Ephesians are dealing uh, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily with who we are. So we hear in Ephesians that we have been saved by grace through faith. And we hear that we are to be a, a holy people. We are to be saints. It's the word that is used in Ephesians. Ephesians 1 through 3 is dealing with who we are. But then 4, 5, and 6 is dealing primarily but not exclusively with how we respond to who we are. What we are to do. The implications of this. And so Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. What he's saying is because of what you have heard of who you are, what God has done, you now need to obey him. Live in obedience to your calling. And that's what it means to be a distinct people. That we respond in obedience to God's covenant initiation. We live as a treasured possession, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. You see, that's who Israel is. That's how they are to live. That's what God said. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. There is something very distinct about Israel, something very different about them than about any other peoples. That's what God is saying. I mean, there's so much to unpack in that one verse. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. I mean, all the earth, God is saying, I own it all. And all the inhabitants, they are mine. Everything in it is mine. And out of all that I own, I'm going to pick for myself a people. I'm going to reach in and I'm going to declare they are mine. Amongst all the peoples. The people of God. This is nothing short of the doctrine of election. God is choosing for himself a people. This is what Jesus said to his disciples, right? You didn't choose me. I chose you. That we are those whom God has chosen to be his people, to live in obedience to his commands. Now, before you get kind of a little smug, kind of bow out your chest a little bit, we're the chosen, you know, we have to remember that God didn't choose us because of ourselves. His choosing isn't about you. It's actually about him. You remember in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses says to God's people, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. There's that language again, treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. Do you hear that? It's not because you are the most beautiful. It's not because you are the strongest. It's not because you are the most numerous. It's not because you are the most intelligent. God said, it's because I love you. That's why I chose you. It's not because you are the wisest or the cleverest. That's where the Apostle Paul goes in 1 Corinthians. He says to the Corinthians, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world. Did you hear that? He's, call, he's basically calling the church foolish. You're the foolish people. God chose the foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. It's not because you're intelligent. It's not because you're generous. It's not because you're beautiful. It's not because you're strong. It's not because you're the most well-liked. It's not because you have great kids. It's not because you're a great dad or mom. None of those reasons are why God loves you, why God chose you to be his treasured possession. It is simply because God loves you. And that is better than it being about our intelligence or our ability because our intelligence and our ability and our looks and our pedigree and all of those things will fail. But the love of God won't. You are my treasured possession. Think about how honoring and dignifying that is. Israel were slaves. Pharaoh looked at Israel and didn't think my treasured possession. He looked at Israel and thought, this is expendable labor. They are only valuable because they can build that next pyramid or they can serve me. And if they give their lives, it doesn't matter because I'll just find more slaves to give as they have. But God says to Israel, you are my treasured possession. Of all the peoples of this world, you are mine. And that's what he says about his church. That's what he says about his church, that we are a treasured possession, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. But he goes on, not just a treasured possession, a holy nation. Now for Israel, this meant an ethnic and political realm, right? What one theologian called a church-state nexus. But now those geopolitical lines, they're, they're no more. See, in the New Testament, God calls us a holy nation as well, but it's not a nation that, that is confined to boundaries and borders. It's a nation that spans boundaries. You see, the point isn't about borders, it's about behavior, that we are to live as a distinct people in this world that our lives are to reflect covenant obedience to God. And as we live this way, we're actually functioning as little m, small m mediators in this world between God and the world. See, we're living as priests. It's the other thing God calls us to. Not just a holy nation and not just a treasured possession, but a kingdom of priests. One theologian said that the priests, their role was to stand between God and humans to help bring man closer to God and help dispense God's truth, justice, favor, discipline, and holiness to man. And that was what Israel was called to do. That was their function. They were to be a kingdom of priests. Now listen, this doesn't negate the formal priesthood because in a few books later in Leviticus, we're going to see the, well, actually in one book later, In the book of Leviticus, we have the Levitical priesthood coming about, the Aaronic priesthood. And so this doesn't negate the formal office of the priest. What this is saying is that just as the Levitical priests would function as mediators between God and his people, that the kingdom of priests Israel would function as mediators between Israel and the world, between God and the world, that this is what they are to be. That they are to live before the nation as an example of what it means to follow God. To proclaim the truths of God's word into the world. To pray on behalf of the world. To keep his promises so that the nation would actually look upon Israel and see what it is meant that they are to live. How they were meant to live. 
And really all this is is a working out of God's promise he made to Abraham. Do you remember the Abrahamic promise? God said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so what God is declaring is that as Israel was to live out this kingdom of priests before the world, it was to be a beachhead of blessings. So the nations would look and say, this is what it means to follow the Lord. And they would actually be drawn into that people. You see, the kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a treasured possession, wasn't just for their own sake, it was, but it was also for the sake of the world. That was the purpose of Israel, but it's also the purpose of the church. It's the same that is true for us, because in 1 Peter chapter 2, this was one of our reflections for this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, you are a chosen race. He says to the church, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, what Peter is declaring is that the church has been called out of sin so that we would live in this uncommon way, that we would live distinctive lives in this world for the sake of the world, so that others would see the excellencies that we proclaim that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That the world would see how we are living and they would hear it with our words and they would experience it with our hands that this is how God intended his people to live. And so this means we're to lead distinctive lives. We are to look uncommon, maybe even strange. That as we live in this world and we seek to obey the Lord, that we should look very different from this world. And there are many things we could talk about. We could talk about sexual ethics, how we should embody a sexual ethic that is more biblical than worldly. We could talk about our words. We could talk about how, how we, we should use our words in a way that is very counter to the way in which our culture does that we don't use our words simply to tear down or to destroy, but that we use them to, to call sin, sin, but we also use them to promote righteousness and truth. I'm not just talking about the words that come out of my mouth, but the words that we use on our keyboards. Right? That, that we don't hide behind anonymity, but we stand behind our words. We could talk about our words. We could talk about sexual ethics. We, we could talk about the family and the home. We could talk about a whole host of other things. The point is, is that as we live in accord with God's covenant stipulations, according to his ethic, that our lives will look uncommon, and they should. So kids, I know it's hard. When your uh, little friends in the neighborhood are wanting you to do things that, that you know you shouldn't do. It's just a lot easier to give in, isn't it? It's a lot easier to sit at the table with all the popular kids, the cool kids, and kind of make fun of the person that looks a little different. It's just easier to do that. And yet, that's not uncommon. Sadly to say, that's very common. Kids, this isn't just for your mom and dad. This is for you. 
to live distinctively Christian lives in your neighborhood. To not just not go along with the crowd, but actually to invite them to do what is right and good. Man, that is hard. I know it is. And yet, as those who have experienced God's deliverance, his care, his love, this is exactly how we are to live. As a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a treasured possession. That's who we are. We know as the players were slumping over in the dark, as they were trying to get back on their skates because the coach was ready to blow the whistle, as they were wiping their mouths and trying to catch their breath. Coach took the whistle and he was ready to blow it to start the lines again, but one of the players, he lifted up his head and he breathed deeply and in between breaths, he yelled out his name and he said his hometown. And then coach, the coach fixed his gaze upon this player and he said, so who do you play for? And this player, catching his breath, didn't say the U, and he didn't say Boston University, and he didn't say the University of North Dakota, and he didn't say any other college. He caught his breath, and he called out in response to who do you play for, he yelled out, the United States of America. And in that moment, he recognized that he had a new identity. You see that as soon as he put that jersey on, that he recognized what Coach said was true, that the name on the front of the chest was more important than the name on the back of the jersey. He had a new identity. He wasn't simply a member of those other teams, but he was now a member of this team. He had this new place, this new identity. And friends, if you are in Christ, you have a new identity. An identity that is greater than citizenship, an identity that is greater than regional affiliation, uh, an identity that is deeper than your sexuality or your family's or your name or your vocation. You have an identity, if you are in Christ, that you are God's people, that you are those who have been delivered, that you are those who have been called to live distinct lives. You have a new identity. Who are you? You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation a people for his own possession. That's who you are. Amen. Our God and our King, we do ask that as you have called us and delivered us out of our sin, that you would lead us into what is true and good, that you would help us to lead courageous lives of distinction, that we would be happy and willing to lead uncommon lives, holy lives before this world that we would live out what it means to be your people, that we would be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a treasured possession, because that is what you have declared us to be. Help us, equip us to do this, and make us mindful of this new identity that you have given to us. And we pray this in Christ's name, and God's people said, Amen.